Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it's not intended for all audiences. This episode contains discussions on sexual assault and violence, so listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Normally, my regular co-host, Abby, is here with me discussing our favorite horror movies together and with you. But she just had a baby and she is on maternity leave. So today I am joined by queer horror essayist and a very good friend and patron of the show, Amber Knapp. Say hi, Amber. Hi there, longtime listener, first time guest. I can't wait to talk about this movie while drinking a nice cup of coffee from my Good Morning Nancy mug, no less, because I will shamelessly plug your merch shop already because I love that Yay! mug. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for that because, you know, I, I am so weird about plugging our merch and about plugging our Patreon and stuff. So like, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> As your friend and your fan, I will plug the hell out of it. Yay! Thank you so much. So y'all need to check out Amber's blog, Another One for the Fire. Amber has a ton of thoughtful essays on their favorite horror movies on there, including one of including one on today's subject. So link is in the show notes. Please check out their blog. It's amazing. Okay. So today we'll be discussing the 2005 horror thriller Red Eye. It was written by Carl Ellsworth and directed by Wes Craven. It stars Rachel McAdams, Killian Murphy, Brian Cox, and Jema Mays. And we're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and you watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Amber, would you please read us the plot summary? Happily, hotel manager Lisa is taking a red-eye flight back home after attending her grandma's funeral. After diffusing a situation with an angry passenger in the terminal, she meets a man named Jackson Rickner. In a seemingly serendipitous moment, Lisa comes to find that she's sitting next to Jackson on her flight. Shortly after takeoff, their small talk escalates when Jack when Jackson turns serious and tells her that he's part of a terrorist-for-hire organization hired to kill the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, Charles Keefe. Jackson says he has a man sitting outside of her father's house waiting to go inside and kill him. To get Jackson to call off the hit on her father, Lisa has to call her hotel and use her managerial pull to move the room of Keefe so that he and his family can be more easily targeted by the assassins. Lisa has until the plane lands to make that phone call. Will she make the call? Will the passengers turn around and notice that something is wrong and intervene? Tune in next week. Thank you for saying <laughs> that. <laughs> oh, no, I think I like lost it the first time you did it because it felt so serial. <laughs> it was just super serial. Like, honestly, it gets me every time, too. Like, it makes me laugh that we do the plot summaries this way now. 
and I worry people are sick of it, but I'm it's good to know that like at least one person thinks it's funny too. So. Well, like the, I think the first time you did it cuz the way Abby writes the plot summaries it like ends on that final line where it's the will the hero do this? Will they be fine? Yes. And it and it ramps up perfectly. So sorry Abby, I tried to get that in there to do this. <laughs> Amber, you did great. Abby would be so proud of you. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the the production part of the film. Um, if you're a longtime listener of the show, I'm really trying to like tone it back on the production part, unless there's some really, really, really interesting tidbits about the production. Um, otherwise, this part of the show is going to be a lot smaller now for the better because there's more room for discussion. So, Amber, uh, take it away. Uh, what do you have for the production? Well, the production of Red Eye went quickly. From green light to the release date was only about five and a half months. After they were greenlit, they were trying to beat out the release date of the Jodie Foster thriller Flight Plan, and they actually made it with red eye being released on august 19th 2005 and flight plan being released on september 23rd rachel mcadams and killian murphy were both the first choices for their respective roles with murphy hopping on a flight from europe as soon as he possibly could to meet with wes craven for the part while the scenes on the plane itself were filmed on a soundstage with a fake plane on hydraulic stands the airport scenes were actually filmed between Miami Airport, LAX, and the airport in Ontario, California, not Ontario, Canada. That is so funny because I had no idea that Flight Plan and Red Eye came out the exact same year, let alone within a month of each other. Like, and I gotta say, out of these two post 9 11 airplane horror thrillers, Red Eye, I feel like, is far superior. <laughs> yeah. It's superior, but Flight Plane is still a good movie on its own. Yes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I actually, I ended up watching Flight Plan randomly because yeah. it was on Amazon Prime. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something about Red Eye that is really special. And we'll, obviously, we're going to go into it during the discussion. Um, but let's finish up the production part. According to Box Office Mojo, Red Eye made a little over $16 million in its opening weekend, ranking second in the domestic box office behind The 40-Year-Old Virgin. <laughs> um, that movie ended up making $21 million. Um, So it was a little bit behind, but not so much. Uh, at the end of its run which was eight weeks later, Red Eye grossed $58 million in the United States and Canada and about $38 million overseas for a worldwide total of $96 million based on a $26 million budget. So the film was a huge financial success, which is great. So according to film critic Sarah Michelle Fetters, quote, sure, Red Eye isn't the most original cookie in the jar, but that doesn't make it any less tasty. This is a slick B-movie thrill ride, unquote. Agreed. Yes. Let's now talk about the Bechdel test. Does it pass, Amber? Yes. It pretty much passes right off the bat between Lisa and her co-worker Cynthia at the hotel because they're on the phone talking about work. 
I mean, even throughout the film, like they do talk about Keith a, f- a few times because he's the main focus of their dilemma. Yeah. But um, they are actually pretty good about about not always talking about him, though, which was a big thing, even at the end, you know, when they talk about like going to get a drink, even, you know, so <laughs> oh, the knee slapper. Yes, <laughs> anything but a baby. <laughs> but I love that, that they, they actually do have really good chemistry, even though they don't actually see each other at till the end of the film. Yeah, I think if I remember right, tacking on stuff for production, they added that scene like very much towards the end because they wanted them to actually share a scene together, not just be on the phone the entire time. They needed the two of them next to each other. So Nancy's dream team test, was the supporting cast at least 50% women? I'm adding a yes with a question mark because there's very few actually named characters in this movie. They're mostly like flight attendant one, woman in green jacket, boy with pen, boy with pen's brother, which is legit how he's credited. And it's Kyle Kyle Garner too, who's gone on to do so many horror movies now. He's credited as like, kid with Penn's brother yeah isn't he from a haunting in connecticut and jennifer's body and yes. um, upcoming scream five i'm so excited i'm so nervous but also so excited i think i'm curious more than anything i have faith i have the ready or not poster in my room so i have faith in them and their work we can only we can only have faith okay so yes. did a woman write direct produce or edit or shoot the film Yes, executive producer Bonnie Curtis and producer Marianne Madalena. Is that how you pronounce their last name? I'm thinking so. She wasn't on the commentary track, so I never heard her voice or like her her name being pronounced. Well, Marianne (laughs) worked previously with Craven as a producer on The People Under the Stairs, New Nightmare, and Scream 2, 3, and 4. Uh, was there a final girl or main character that was a person of color? Nope. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. Okay. Uh, I mean, we can, <laughs> we can hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's get into our discussion. So let's talk about air travel and horror. According to the Washington Post for an article titled Passengers Behaving Badly, the real reason we freak out on planes, quote, Martin Seif, a clinical psychologist who focuses on clients with a paralyzing fear of flying, says it boils down to this. Whether people are consciously aware of it or not, a plane is a unique environment that forces us to confront the uncomfortable existential truth that we have no control over what happens, unquote. (laughs) And, you know, we learn that Lisa has a fear of flying or at least a fear of takeoff. Uh, At this moment, she is quite literally losing control of her situation. She... Like, she doesn't even realize that Jackson is not really the quote-unquote nice guy yet either. And this metaphor for loss of control, I think, is pretty genius. It's not, like, until the plane lands that Lisa has finally regained control over her situation and over Jackson. And I feel like, apart from flight plan, really... I don't feel like there are a lot of good airplane 
horror films um, or stories with like this yeah. type of this type of theme of loss of control and fear of flying psychology like added to it like there's horror set on plans that's inter- interrupt you i know there's horror set on planes not plans mm-hmm. but you're talking like flight of the living dead exorcism at twenty thousand feet nothing that's like i don't want to say i know i don't want to say yeah. i don't want to say highbrow because that's pretentious yeah. as fuck but like it's it's quite literally elevated horror yes <laughs> I will see myself out. <laughs> but airplane horror does not have to be, like, ridiculous. You know, it can be really intense, like this film is. Um, you know, and Flight Plan does have this fear of loss of control for sure. But I think another great example is the 1963 Twilight Zone episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. And, like, here's a man who is already a bit nervous about flying. Um, He has just gotten out of a mental institution. Uh, So he's not seen as a credible witness to anything going wrong because it's assumed that he is just over-exaggerating. And I think this this episode of The Twilight Zone has endured in popular culture because, like, even pre-9-11... People have always been afraid to fly. Insert moment to talk about how brilliant Twilight Zone is. And Rod Serling was so ahead of his time with everything he wrote. Yeah, it's a little spooky how much he like knew. It It's kind of neat, actually, in a way. But one day, we will do a Rod Serling episode. We have to. He wrote, I think, almost half. He wrote or co-wrote almost half of the episodes of Twilight Zone. So he had his hand in so much of it and so much of it yes. has stood up well and even richard matheson who wrote uh, who wrote this episode you know of of twilight zone he even was somebody who was ahead of his time in a lot of stuff and i think him and rod serling really were a good match when it came to this television show and we will talk about it it's going to be great rod serling is actually from the area of New York that I'm from. So if you really listen to, especially the episodes that he writes, he the people, characters are in Buffalo, New York, which is where I am now. Characters are going to Syracuse, which is where I'm from and where Abby lives. Um, they go to like Elmira and Binghamton, like all these different places, like in central New York. Rod Serling's great. We'll talk more about him another time. <laughs> okay, so this actually brings us to our next topic, post 9-11 and like horror movies. Um, so I actually have something to read from a book. The book that missed so many opportunities. You know, it really did, but it has a great intro. Yeah, like it took a few good opportunities looking at the table of contents that you sent me. So it took a few, but it missed a lot. I feel. Yeah, it missed, well, it missed Red Eye and Flight Plan. <laughs> I think it missed two key films yeah. in this era. Um, so let me just read this introduction by Avia Briefel and Sam J. Miller. Uh, so they say, quote, In the darkened tower issue of The New Yorker, Anthony Lane wrote that the present circumstances that Hollywood should no longer try to match. 
How could American audiences, after tasting real horror, want to consume images of violence on screen? The omnipresent post-traumatic response of it was like a movie seemed to herald the death of a genre that would either remind viewers of catastrophes they wanted to forget or pale in comparison to the terrors of the real thing. Some critics, on the other hand, viewed horror as the perfect medium for, the, for re-representing 9-11 and its aftermath. An October 23rd, 2001 article from the New York Times tried to imagine the forms that horror films would take to adapt to the new global context. Quote, the horror movie is just sitting there waiting to deal with this. It is one of the most versatile genres out there, a universal solvent of virtually any news issue, and is now perfectly positioned to cop some serious attitude to play a role where it's not simply a date movie, but going further back to the 1950s, where you have the horror movie as a metaphor, unquote. So even though this book, unfortunately, doesn't mention Red Eye, <laughs> I read that intro and I was like, this does sort of, obviously this, this sort of shows like what like, Red Eye probably would not have had the impact that it had if it hadn't been for 9-11. No. And I think that this intro perfectly, like, sums up, like, why Red Eye did so well. Um, and according to Megan Navarro for Bloody Disgusting, quote, It was also Craven who decided to make the assassination target a homeland security politician, a change from the script's description of the character as a powerful businessman. That small change didn't amount to anything plot-wise, but gave depth in motivations behind the conspiracy and subtle timely commentary in the wake of 9-11. In other words, it was a more meaningful answer to who this character was and why he was being targeted. Craven had no intention of playing up that element too much or having it take away from the fast-paced thriller. He knew exactly what this movie was and didn't veer off course while making it." Unquote. We can really thank the test screening audiences for this one because they wanted Keith to have more of a backstory than just being a generic rich guy. And that little career change just brought the movie up so many levels. And very recently on the heels of the Department of Homeland Security even being formed. Mm -hmm. Because the Department of Homeland Security was only formed in 2002. It was like late 2002. Wow, if I remember yeah. right, it was like over a year after 9-11, and then this movie came out in 2005. Yeah, so DHS was extremely new mm -hmm. at the time, so it would have been on everybody's mm -hmm. radar. Like, the people who were paying attention, obviously, mm -hmm. to all this. Me, as a very young child, I was not paying attention. That's but... a, yeah, I was in, like, third grade when it happened, so I don't really right. remember it as much, but like... Right, would, but yeah. people who were of the age to go mm -hmm. see Red Eye yeah. would have would have definitely like had like DHS uh, on their radar. They would have caught that because I think it was um because they show him in the airport like just the TVs around the airport. They show like him during a press conference, mm -hmm. so you know everybody knows who this dude is. Right, yeah, that would have been a big deal post nine eleven for sure. Um, okay, so 
kind of this kind of connects to what was said in the intro which you know what are horror movies gonna look like and are people gonna even want to watch them after 9-11 uh and joel mirez answers their own question when they write quote why does the ending work because for all of its incisive mining of 9-11 fears, its light social commentary and its tight script, Red Eye has an air of the ridiculous right from the get-go. Everything in the film is heightened to an almost surreal wink-wink level. The movie's climax is only out of step if you weren't paying attention to the movie itself. It is excessive, and yes, it has more than just echoes of Craven's previous work, but it's also a release. The director eschews a tighter, neater, subtler ending to give the audience what they want, making a meal of the tension he's built throughout throwing on a second dessert, throughout and throwing on a second dessert of slasher fun just because he can, unquote. Yeah, so the movie runtime, I think, clocks in at an hour, 25 minutes. So it's sub 90 minute mark. The really does not waste anything all the dialogue has a purpose all the characters domino effect into each other there's like not a wasted minute no and even in minute even in parts where it's like kind of slow quote unquote yeah it's not no like there's a reason that they're showing everything they're showing the old woman asleep and jackson taking the book that lisa wrote the note into the old lady to try and get help yeah every moment has a purpose in this film and it's just delightful <laughs> the third act starts when the plane lands and all of those characters that we had seen come into play yet again as she's running off the plane and it's chef's kiss yes every character the the mean doctor guy the kids the 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 you know the teenagers yes everybody everybody has a moment at the end like everything comes full circle and it's great it's wonderful um yeah and this this is why this film worked i think because i think if this was a a pre 9-11 film it would have not worked like that ending because people have been like oh that would that's not realistic that would never have happened blah 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 whatever but because we just went through something really fucking traumatic as not just a nation but like as a human race um that that really like chill like fun ending is perfect and it it still holds up because i think if you you know when this movie is taking place it it makes you feel good yeah i i'm satisfied at the end yeah (laughs) for sure see i think like the first time i watched it I might not have been, like, fully paying attention to it because I was like, okay, I just rented this movie from Hollywood Video, whatever. But then, like, a couple years ago, it was on HBO something, whatever, and I'm like, oh, that was that Wes Craven movie or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't seen it in a while. I'm not doing anything. I'll watch it. And, like, halfway through, I'm like, why are we not having this conversation about this movie? This this needs to be talked about. Totally. And, like... Amber, you have some quotes from Wes Craven that have to do with this topic of like post 9-11, like airports and and whatnot. Um, Could you read those for us? Yes. Blanket referencing ahead of time for where I got these. I got these quotes from watching the DVD with the commentary track of Red Eye. So in the scene, it's right after takeoff. It's 
I think it's like right after where Jackson like first confronts Lisa and she's hitting the button to get the stewardess's attention. They're like back in the corridor and they're talking about, well, they're more complaining about work and they're losing their pensions. And Craven says, it's part of that post 9-11 reality of flying where everything's just different. You know, flight attendants are not happy with their jobs or don't even feel secure in them. And they're not happy about serving people anymore. And, you know, the customers are always watching people around them, wondering if there's somebody dangerous. And he actually said the you knows. I added in there. That wasn't me. (laughs) Jumping ahead before we get sad again. But during the climax, after the plane lands and they're running through Miami Airport, which was actually filmed at LAX. They just put up the Miami signs. When they were filming, all of the civilians in the background were just civilians who did not know that they were being filmed. So they're just watching people run through. And... (laughs) Craven's like, yeah, Craven's like, it's interesting filming in three separate airports because we shot in Miami port, Miami airport. Also, you know, after 9-11, it was very delicate. And I just want to put my thanks out there to all three of those airports for allowing us to shoot there. So like, yeah, they allowed him to do that. But apparently they didn't like put out a notice of, hey, there's going to be film crews and these fake announcements going out of security to this gate like right now. Let's just heighten everyone's fears that they already have by just having people covered in blood running through the airport. I'm laughing because because it's so ridiculous mm-hmm. and I would be so afraid. I know. All right. Well, like you said, we are going to get sad again. So um, the next topic, the next topic is about like hashtag me too and rape revenge in Red Eye. So according to Rachel Montpellier, quote, the word rape is never uttered in Red Eye. It doesn't need to be. The reality of it hangs over every scene. In order to dominate Lisa and ensure she goes along with him, Jackson constantly gets in her face One could even say he invades her personal space, belittles her, and is physically violent with her. He does not sexually assault Lisa, but the viewer always wonders if that's where the story is headed, unquote. And Montpellier continues and says, quote, Overcome with rage, Jackson slams Lisa against the wall and covers her mouth with his hand. Don't fight me, he commands. Throughout the course of the scene in the bathroom, Jackson pins Lisa against the wall, chokes her, and even pulls her sweater open a little to get a look at her scar. And we'll get to that in a minute. Because of this choreography and the nature of Jackson's violence, it's impossible to watch this without thinking of sexual assault. Red Eye knows this, and so does Jackson. Thanks for the quickie. He deadpans as he lets a shaken Lisa out of the restroom, unquote. Yeah, so Montpellier goes on to say that once the plane lands, Lisa is reminded of how she got the scar. She says it happened in a parking lot two years ago in the middle of the day. He held a knife to my throat the whole time, unquote. And again, Lisa does not say the word rape, but we know from the pain in her eyes and voice that that is what happened. 
and for its duration, Red Eye smartly signals that the violence has permanently affected Lisa. She's standoffish with strangers, works too much, and doesn't really have a personal life, unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to the first time the audience sees the scar, she's in the airport bathroom because Lady, the one extra who doesn't come back, runs into her and spills her iced coffee all down her shirt. So she goes to the bathroom to clean up. So she takes her sweater off and she's got like this cami on underneath it. So it's the spaghetti straps. It's real kind of lacy and you can see it. It's like kind of, she says it's her throat, but it's like really like her collarbone is where the physical scar actually is. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's sort of a, that's that's sort of a, yeah. Yeah. That's a little off, but oh well. <laughs> yeah, it's a little off, but we can let it slide. But during the screenings, Wes Craven noted that it was interesting watching that scene because the guys in the audience are like, uh-oh, she's taking her shirt off. But then you are kind of brought up to the reality of who she are as a human in an unexpected way when you see the scars. And the guys just go from oh to oh. And the girls are like, uh-huh. Jackson, yeah. yeah, there's, it's very much kind of the gaze. Yeah, the male gaze, and then it ends up changing once they kind of realize, like, oh, wait. Yeah. Like, it's not <laughs> a soul shot of the scar, but it's plain as day with how they frame it. And it's like, yeah, this this isn't supposed to be as sexy as you think it is. Yeah. <sighs> and so before the events of the movie even unfold, Jackson was following Lisa for eight weeks leading up to this whole terrorist plot and according to craven we don't learn the extent of what jack's job is but he followed her for two months the idea of assassinating a homeland security official led to him stalking this woman for two months and waiting until she was in a vulnerable spot and i legit just copy and pasted that from my essay yes (laughs) (laughs) And to quote Wes Craven yet again, continuing that thought, it's much longer than he would have needed to watch her as a professional. He sort of accidentally, he sort of accidentally stumbles very close to what her secret is during that scene where he's taking the jabs at her, where he's like, first talking about the divorce and how she's such a loner. And he says, did somebody break your heart? No, somebody raped me. Because she like, yeah, because like. She squints her eyes and kind of looks away where he's like, did somebody break your heart? And it's like, it chokes her so hard. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, that, oh, this movie is so freaking good. And like, like it's... And props it's, to them as acting, too, because Killian just delivers his lines so coldly, it makes you hate him. Because when he's... Yes. Because when he does that, he's like, oh, did somebody break your heart? He's, like, so sarcastic about it. And mm-hmm. I'll probably bring that up again when we get to the scene because you'll know. Yes. <laughs> you'll know when I'm going to interject this again with his acting. <laughs> so Montpelier ends their essay with, quote, rewatching Red Eye in light of the myriad Hollywood sex abuse revelations is impossible to separate 
It's impossible to separate Lisa's experiences from what hundreds of real-life women and men in and out of show business have had to contend with. Like her real-world counterparts, Lisa is put into a horrible position by a seemingly benign, more powerful person. Horror draw. Horror dawns on Lisa as her interplay with Jackson morphs from friendly to kind of weird to downright scary, and the abuse, threats, and humiliations she weathers will stay with Lisa a long time, if not forever. The most terrifying aspect of Red Eye is that, as our culture's ever-unfolding toxic masculinity problem makes clear, the dynamic between the two main characters could take place anywhere. It already has, unquote. Okay, so now let's talk a bit more about toxic masculinity and predatory behavior in Red Eye. So Jackson is constantly making verbal jabs about Lisa's female-driven, emotion-based decision-making. And like we mentioned earlier, he makes weird sexual innuendos after he violently assaults Lisa, comparing sex and violence... And I wouldn't be surprised if Jackson actually does get off on abusing women. Like, he obviously doesn't mind killing women and children. And um, Carly Lane points out that there is some humanity to Jackson. Like, there are moments later on in the plot when his viciousness dissolves and he indicates that he could be considered as concerned for her, especially once, like, the script alludes to Lisa having been attacked at knife point sometime in her past prior to his surveillance. And Murphy, like, he kind of, like, is a character with enough humanity to avoid becoming a villainous stereotype. Um, I don't agree with Lane with this. I don't feel like he does become sympathetic. But that doesn't mean, like, he that's a bad thing, though. Like, he's a bad guy. (laughs) So, like, do you you think that he becomes sympathetic, Amber? I mean, there's points where they want to make it where he, like, quote-unquote breaks when he lets it slip to Lisa that it's not just Charles being assassinated, but it's his whole family. Because, like, he stops and he's like, you know, if somebody wants to send a brash message, that's their business. And he's like, I didn't really want to do this, but like, I have to kind of a deal. And listening to the commentary, the phrase that keeps coming up is that he sold his soul for this. As they say it multiple times. And like, yes, he did. But does that automatically mean he gets sympathy? Not to me. No. no. Like, there's a few moments, but like, no. Well, because he is technically human. So, yeah, there are going to be, like, moments. But, like, he's a bad guy. And it's okay that we don't feel sympathy for him, I think. Especially with this type of film. <laughs> no. Like, we ha- we see some humanity with him. Like, not that. But, like, the scene early on in the terminal where he stands up for the airline workers. That customer is just being a complete asshole to her. So, like... It doesn't negate the grand scheme of themes, but that's more humanity than a lot of people show to a lot of people in customer service. (laughs) Right. And I almost feel like he didn't do that, though, for her, though. I feel like he kind of might have done it because he wanted to make Lisa trust him. I could. Now that I see that, I definitely 
see that. Because she speaks up first and is like, hey, yeah. leave this lady alone. Yeah. And he kind of yeah. like backs her up. And yeah. I think that was like, he probably felt like, oh, this is my moment to like. To insert like himself. Nice, to look like a nice guy yeah. in front of her. Yeah, because it's um, like leading up to that scene, we see him because he's like a person or two behind Lisa in line. So he's already in the scene. He just hasn't found a way to insert him into her environment yet. Really. And I think that was his opportune moment. That was. And it makes sense. How I want to put this. Of him seemingly having his humanity. Is that. It boils down to how abusers don't abuse everyone that they come into contact, thus making some people not believe the survivors because they're like, well, this person never did this to me, so why would they do that to you? Come on, you're obviously right. faking it because they were so nice to me. I absolutely agree with that. That was That's a really good point that you just brought up there. Yeah, cue me quoting my own essay again that I wrote on this, but yes, <laughs> once Jackson's tensions are revealed, he doesn't hold back. The charming man she had once smiled and joked with at the bar is now a manipulative, controlling, and misogynistic airhead. Surrounded by other passengers and roaming stewardesses, Lisa is forced to silence her sobs and play along as if she's still upset just over her grandma's passing. Jack keeps his charm with the surrounding people as best as he can, but when he turns back to Lisa, that facade falls. Throughout the movie, as the escalation of his desperation happens, the more desperate he becomes, the more dangerous he becomes. Yes. Yeah. Honestly, I think the most terrifying part for me is at the end as they're landing and he looks at Lisa and he's like, all right, once I'm out of your sight, I'll call off Mr. Killer from outside dad's and then you're free. You're free to yell and scream and call your dad and tell him to run to your neighbors and like playing along. She's just like, whatever you say. And it's very much the when I'm done with you moment. And it's like, mm -mm. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely like the you only matter for this moment because I'm using you so I can get what I need or what I want. And then I then I'm done with you. Then you're just trash, basically. In the article Red Eye, Contemporary Feminist Classic, question mark, by Thea Lim. In an article by Soraya Roberts, even the god of horror, Wes Craven, says horror movies were all about horror movies were once all about fear and fright today they're all about pain and suffering but what really gripped me about this movie is the opening where lisa and jackson first meet it's a scene you've seen and maybe experienced a million times the overly familiar man talks to the overly polite woman having a drink with him condescends to her repeatedly asks her if she's all right and acts genuinely gross what amazes me about this run-of-the-mill scene is that it was in a movie Thea Lim also says, like, movies about resistance to male violence, like Sleeping with the Enemy or Enough, are transformation movies. The plot is that there's a pretty little lady and her vulnerability and desire for love are what makes her the perfect target for an abusive male. And she has to transform herself from the soft, domesticated rabbit in order to be a viable opponent opponent 
for her abuser. While these movies can be empowering, they do imply that regular femi women can't take a man. Red Eye, on the other hand, shows that even 24-hour people pleasers can resist and be powerful. The writer Liz Springate says that sometimes we don't want to talk about ways to resist male violence for fear that it will make women who've been assaulted feel as if they had some control over the situation and therefore could have prevented themselves from being assaulted and are to blame for not doing so. But Red Eye actually deals with this issue head on by displaying both how terrifying and impossible it can seem to escape an attacker and how possible it really is, even for Rachel McAdams, unquote. I just want to say, Hit me. This, <laughs> this probably is not quite the right place, but there's not going to be a better place. This, this, this is where I'm thinking of it. So yep. this is where it's popping up. Could Lisa be a metaphor for the United States of America? Because her name means God's promise. Which, like, whether you're religious or not, this could totally be a metaphor for the United States coming to terms with what had happened on 9-11. And... The film took place in 2005, but I think it's interesting that she has a past trauma of being violently raped in the middle of the day. This could be a metaphor for 9-11, which happened in broad daylight. Now, here's Lisa, so many years later, still very traumatized, but not willing to be a victim again. She says, quote, ever since Ever since, I've been trying to convince myself of one thing over and over. And then Jackson says that it was beyond your control. And she says, no, that it would never happen again. And then she stabs him in the neck with a pen. Fuck yeah! Yeah, okay. This was the one bit that I know where they talked about it on the commentary. And it actually was really kind of fascinating to me because the shot they used in the movie or the take they used when he delivers the line it it's not really condescending but it's not like sympathetic it's more of like he's making the statement of like it was beyond your control but they shot it i think a minimal of three times with him doing it in multiple tones like the one time he was super sympathetic about it like legitimately felt bad and then the one time he took a take and he was super sarcastic about it and i think the final take almost falls in the middle of that of like he doesn't yeah. want the awkward silence but he legit kind of feels bad that that happened to her like he wouldn't condone it but i wouldn't put him past him to do him to do it either honestly i think that because um that jackson is a predator i think that he even the way because it does you're right it does sound very much in the middle and i think think that for me this is sort of like a you're giving up now kind of thing like are you gonna this is like the end you know so it's sort of like a a peaceful reminder to her that this is the end basically and that you know everything no matter everything is beyond your control this moment the when you when you were hurt two years ago this moment that's happening now like you can't do anything about it 
almost like a sympathetic, like, I'm sorry that I'm sorry that you're so weak and you can't do anything about it is how I'm looking at it. And then that's why he kind of puts his guard down because she because he has foiled every move that she's tried to make to beat him on the plane. This is where I love the metaphor where once the plane lands, she has control over herself and her situation because there's nobody keeping her back. And I think this is like another great example of like, it's not her fault. She's in a fucking airplane. She can't do anything. Yeah, she is literally trapped for however long. It's like it's like Dallas to Miami, red eye. Yeah. Like, the flight wouldn't be that long. It would be long enough where it was yeah. like, I mean, it'd be <laughs> where long it probably enough that felt she... like 500 hours yeah. because she's, like, you know, is in danger. Like, the trip might have been, like, three, four hours. I don't know. I haven't been on a plane in years. But it probably felt like 40 hours to her. Yes. And so the fact that she never once gave up, even when she knew she was out of, like, her everything was out of her control. She never gave up. And it was only until the situation around her changed that she was able to get away. So again, nothing was ever her fault, but she took every opportunity that was given to her. Oh, yeah. That is something that they teach you in, like, self-defense or rape defense classes on college campuses is if you have to play along for a certain amount of time before you feel your opportunity, so be it. That's what you have to do. Yes. Yes. And at the same time, they don't like I think that that's a thing that that does happen. Like I used to listen to My Favorite Murder, which is a podcast that most people know about. Um, I used to listen to it a lot. And after a while, I started getting like really judgmental towards like the say like the saying they say, stay sexy and don't get murdered. A lot of people have every merch now. Everybody loves that. Everybody Mm -hmm. says it. And I you know, when you first hear it, you're like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. but it is kind of victim blamey if you really think about it. Yeah. And, you know, like, like, just like, just stay sexy and don't get murdered. Just do it, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, but you can't just, sometimes yeah. you just can't not get murdered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I see, do see yeah. why people enjoy that saying because oh, yeah. it's sort of a, even if it is sort of flawed, the wording is flawed. Mm-hmm. I think the intention of it is don't give up. Yeah. Even when things are out of your control, don't give up yeah. because maybe, maybe a moment will happen, you yeah. know? And I think that is the, I think that's the intention around it. Yeah. And maybe. that is a great message in this film. She never gives up. She is tired. She is angry. She is sad. <laughs> She's been through a shit ton of emotional trauma. <laughs> PTSD. Man, the girl's grandma just died. God, yes. man. And, and he won't just die. She stabs him in the neck and he still is like, ha. Ah. He like shows up at her house like. <gasps> Which is where the asshole doctor comes back. But like, that's why they brought the asshole doctor back. Because like, she stabs him in the throat. But she just hits him in the voice box. It's not like she hits him in the artery and it's very theatrical blood gushing. Because the movie's PG-13, by the way. Yes, but it is. Yeah, because she just hits him, like, square in the middle. And they're like, how much can we show? How much can we get away with? So they just show it with him breathing. And then cue asshole doctor. And he's like, 
oh, that's not bad. Like, it's just a little voice back. So that's why he yanks it out, because they brought the character back to be like, this isn't fatal. He's going to be fine. He's still going to chase her. Here he goes. Yep. Perfect movie magic right there. Mm. That's a great... I love how they... I think this term is called Chekhov's gun, where they, like, remind you of something over and over, and then it has a payoff at the end, Mm -hmm. and that's sort of, like, what happens with all these characters. Like, you're introduced to them, you're reminded of them, Mm -hmm. and then there's a payoff with why they're there, which is really great. Yeah. Which other payoff, I want to get it... I just want to get this in real quick. Yeah. But, like, the other payoff goes all the way back to the trailer, because of these familiarized romantic comedies that there was the wave of in the early 2000s, the TV spots and the trailers for Red Eye were cut as such through the power of editing of, it starts off, it's got the, you know, whimsical music, you know, she's charming, he's funny. Oh, look, they're on the same plane together. Are they going to get together? No. (laughs) It, like... It starts off like the first quarter of the trailer plays like a romantic comedy, and then it cuts to them sitting on the plane, and it's like, no, this isn't that movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, that is like something that I've heard a lot of people talk about, that this really starts off like a romantic comedy, and then you're just, shit hits the fan. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It hits the fan (laughs) fast and hard, because I'll save that for my final thought. I'll save it for the final thought of the one that I have. Yeah, so like... Yeah, so yes. let's get into the actual final thought of yeah. the show. Um, Lisa... Good transition to that. Yes, yes, she was a final girl that 2005 needed. According to Andy Zielser, quote, for Craven, whose strict Christian upbringing informed his dark searching vision, a feminist awakening was as simple as a broadening of perspective as he developed his art. He told an interviewer that his daughter inspired him to rethink rope rethink wrote representation of female victims noting that she chided him after seeing 1982's campy comic book adaptation of swamp thing she said quote dad girls don't always fall down unquote and this made craven realize that he had fallen into the old horror cliche of the girl running from the villain and tripping on a rock or some other debris he said quote i didn't really care for that so it got me thinking about taking it in the other direction unquote as audiences were seeing red eye for the first time that moment when Jackson turns to Lisa and says, as fate would have it, my business is all about you, it garnered that same, oh shit, moment that audiences had when Casey's on the phone and scream and the killer says, because I want to know who I'm looking at. It was that same moment. And that's the turn from the romantic comedy to, it's a horror movie now. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Wes Craven does that the best. <laughs> oh, it's, it's it's the Janet Lee. <laughs> Yes. Psycho. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh. All right. While Red Eye played jump rope with the line of thriller and horror, you can't deny you can't deny the connection that Lisa has to Final Girl's past. She eludes her predator and runs for the speeding car like Sally. She grabs the field hockey stick like Lori grabs the knitting needle. Jackson follows her back to her home like Nancy luring Freddie in so she has home field advantage. Her story also follows the arc of the standard rape-revenge story within the context of the film and from her story before the audience comes in. The storyline of the offense, 
the aftermath and the revenge starts when Lisa is attacked in the parking lot and then it restarts once she's seated on the plane next to Jackson. There's a quote-unquote knife to her throat the entire time she's on the flight. Only this time, she gets her revenge. Once Jackson tracks her back home, he tells her, I'll finish the job. And she powers back at him, not in my house. Yes. Ah, it's such like a beautiful three acts of a movie. It's so beautiful. Yeah, this movie, plot-wise, is neatly tied up with a beautiful little bow by Wes Craven. And it's like it textbook is gorgeous. Written. Yes, it is a fun freaking film with a great ending, post-9-11, great ending, makes you feel good, but also, like, you actually, like, feel like you're in, like, a thriller, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, mm-hmm. you don't feel like, yeah. you know, that you are just watching, like, like, yeah you know anything like soft or silly yeah. or anything like i like, think that feels like a fun uh, thriller yeah. i think that's why it kind of hit because people are like yeah it's a new west craven movie oh it's not a slasher eh. but it did kind of becomes one at the end yeah. when he gets a knife but yeah it's not technically like once they're one. in the house it's a chase scene from a slasher movie it's what yeah we've it's seen scream with basically Go- yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah y'all if you haven't seen red eye well, it's been spoiled, sorry, but <laughs> you should watch it. It's so much fun. Please check it out. Um, and yeah, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Um, I actually want to thank my friend and new research assistant, Carrie Fagan Alaco, for her help on this episode. Carrie is one half of the amazing podcast, Last Year's Horror, and she offered to use her impeccable research skills to help me out with this episode. So thank you so much, Carrie. Uh, everyone check out her and her husband, Ben's podcast, Last Year's Horror. I've been a guest on it twice. It's so much fun. Definitely check it out. And of course, big shout out to Amber for being my co-host this week while Abby is on maternity leave. Thank you, Amber, for being an amazing friend and supporting the show, not only by being my co-host today, but also through Patreon as well. That means so much to Abby and I, truly. I know. it. I mean, this is not me kissing you or Abby's butt. You know I've been listening to this show for years at this point. <laughs> oh like. God. Oh, no, I'll just let me embarrass you and say the first episode I listened to was House of a Thousand Corpses. Oh, my God. Wow. We have we have grown. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's so good. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for listening for so long. Obviously, like you and I became really close friends. Like we text each other every day. Like Mm -hmm. we send each other memes and stuff. Like we've become really close. So I'm just really like, I'm really happy that the show has helped me like gain new friendships with other people who love horror because it's, that's hard to come by Mm -hmm. (laughs) naturally. Yeah, it is like social media only does so much. So I appreciate the work you guys have all done and appreciate that our friendship has come from it. Like beyond yeah. I, beyond the words I can say, I appreciate it. I love you so much. I love you, Gracie Lou. <gasps> oh, 
<laughs> Listen, everyone, if you enjoy what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show, so let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. We're still in the process of rebuilding our website, but I will make sure to update y'all when it is finished. So until then, make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Also, don't forget to tell a friend and spread the word about our show. And don't forget, Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. So check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.